Hello, and laissez le bon temps rouler. It is Mardi Gras and National Patchkey Day. Welcome to the Tuesday, March 1st, 2022 episode of the musical universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is jazz vibraphonist Ben Galise. With over a decade on the New York jazz scene, vibraphonist Ben Galise has built a reputation as a virtuosic instrumentalist and prolific composer. With inspiration from such legends as Milt Jackson and Bobby Hutcherson, Galise, throughout his career, has committed himself to advancing the art form of the vibraphone while flourishing as a jazz composer. A New Jersey native, Galise had many early performance opportunities in his home state as well as Philadelphia before moving to New York City in 2006. Since then, he has made quite a name for himself as a sought-after sideman as well as a band leader and recording artist. His latest release, Still Doing Our Thing, released in 2021 on the Positone label, was recorded in the most difficult year of the music industry in a generation. Yet despite difficult circumstances, Galice's stellar quartet safely came together and did what they do best, which is make astounding music. The group includes pianist Art Hirahara, bassist Boris Kozlov, and drummer Rudy Royston, with a guest appearance by saxophonist Nicole Glover. From 2009 to 2013, Gleese co-led four transformative recordings on Positone Records with tenor saxophonist Ken Fowser, all receiving international acclaim and extensive radio play. 
Galiza's first four debut albums as a leader, Mindset, 2015, Positone Records, Dare to Be, 2016, Positone Records, Walk of Fire, 2017, Positone Records, and Parallel Universe, 2018, Positone Records, helped the ascension of his public appreciation and made immediate splashes in the press and radio, picking up a 2018 Downbeat Rising Star Award. The vibraphonist has also appeared as a sideman on many recordings, most recently contributing his playing to the albums by Michael Deese, New Faces, Walt Weisskopf, Melody Gardot, Idle Hands, Out to Dinner, and Ensemble Novo. Galice has performed his music throughout the world at venues which include the Lincoln Center, Kennedy Center, Kimmel Center, Smalls Jazz Club, Mesro, Jazz Standard, Side Door, Smoke Jazz Club, Fat Cat, Yoshi's, Chris's Jazz Cafe, and many others. Galice has also appeared at music festivals worldwide, including the North Sea, Montreux, Nice, Molde, Ghent, Montreal, and Toronto festivals. In addition to his robust performance life, Galice also has a burgeoning career as a music educator. Galice is a member of the faculty at Rowan University and New Jersey City University, where he teaches vibraphone, jazz ensemble, music theory, and online courses. In addition to the various workshops he has been asked to give at colleges and universities across the world, he has prepared over 700 lessons for online instruction on Vibe Workshop com, which benefits percussion students internationally. Galice holds a master's degree from State University of New York Purchase and is endorsed by Molitech Instruments. His awards include the aforementioned 2018 Downbeat Rising Star Vibraphonist, the 2009 Betty Carter Jazz Ahead Residency, winning the Generations Competition in 2009, and winning the 2008 Jazz Improvisation Competition at the Percussive Arts Society International Convention. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Ben Galice. Hello, Ben. Hi, Craig. How's it going? It's really great to talk with you. I think we're doing okay. Kind of cold, but uh, you know it's winter time and we're uh, we're surviving. Um, you know, I'd like what I'd like to get to right away is uh, as a vibraphone player, uh, who turned the light on for you? What what turned you on to music? Um. So, I guess. If I had to think back, I kind of stumbled into what I do by accident, more or less. Um, I didn't really discover the vibe 
the vibraphone right away, as I'm sure a lot of vibraphone players would say that. Um, but as a I started music late as a teenager, and um, I just ended up wanting to play drums with some friends in a band, and I ended up getting involved in my high school music program, and they had everything, you know, marching band, concert band, the jazz band. And so through the years of doing that, I eventually stumbled into playing mallets, xylophone, marimba, and we had a set of vibes. And I didn't really know any difference between all of them. I just knew that some, you know, certain parts that I would have in these ensembles would require the different mallet instruments. But as I started to get more into them, I started to discover the vibraphone was more of like a, a, a jazz instrument. And my teacher was starting to take me out to his performances. And he had a friend that was a drummer in his band, but he also played a little vibraphone also. So he had a set of vibes that he used to bring out to gigs. And I could kind of play because my teachers would show me a thing or two before I really got into studying the vibes when I was in college. But I actually ended up going to college to study uh, classical percussion. And I was just very intrigued by jazz at that point. Like my peers, I would hear them play and I, I knew a little bit and I knew how to play mallets with my classical background. So through just kind of hanging out with them, eventually they said, well, you should really consider doing this because, you know, you kind of have a natural thing for improvising and they were very encouraging. Um, so then from there, it was basically peers of mine that tried to show me, you know, what to listen to. And I even remember um, <laughs> one of my colleagues took me out to a Tower Records. Uh, remember those places? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That kind of and, dates us a little bit, but yeah, yeah. Tower, tower Records, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This was so, <laughs> so uh, there was one pretty close to the school. And uh, I remember there was a, an older gentleman that was working behind the, the, the counter who wasn't just a cashier, like they, you know, they actually had like a jazz section and, you know, knowledgeable people working in those sections. Um, so ah, the good old days. Yeah, right, right, right. The people that knew something about the music that they were selling. <laughs> And so I remember I was very, like in the beginning, I knew about Gary Burton, um, mm -hmm. who was kind of like a, who's, you know, I think at that time was kind of like a great bridge between classical and jazz, because when you study classical music, almost every classical percussionist knows who Gary Burton is. And um, so I had a lot of his recordings. And um, so I was kind of going, crazy on that and had a bunch of these CDs and the guy said do you play the vibes and I said yeah he's like well you should be listening to Bobby Hutcherson <laughs> so I, I did I took his advice and so then I started listening to Bobby and Milt Jackson and some of my colleagues were turning me on to you know Parker and different Blue Note albums from the 60s um like I remember some of my 
first albums I owned were uh, uh, Hank Mobley, Soul Station, Joe Henderson, Page One. I might have bought those two in the same trip. <laughs> and just from there, it kind of just started to snowball. And mm -hmm. so that, I think that's, you know, just to give you the long answer there, uh, it kind of took some time, but there was a bunch of people in my around me that kind of started to nudge me in the right direction sure. who to listen to and who to check out and then from yeah. there of course it was just discovering people that actually you know i grew i i went to school close to philadelphia so then it was started going now to meet people in philly and mm -hmm. so it's you know it kind of just snowball from there well you know your story is i i'm chuckling only because i for years i taught uh beginning band in middle school. And uh, although I didn't teach the beginner percussionists, I had a colleague that did that. I taught all the beginner brass, but I don't ever recall a student, a seventh grade student coming in to beginning percussion class, just wanting to play the keyboard percussion. I mean, they all wanted to play the drums, you know? Right. So, and then later it's sort of like, Oh, you know, the keyboards are kind of cool because, you know, they can play melodies and stuff like, you know, the other instruments of the band. And then, you know, so by about eighth, ninth grade, they start to develop a little more interest. But then uh, it's like, it seems like, you know, like you get to college. And of course, there you're coming into a much more even advanced environment and you're discovering uh, all these wonderful classical percussionist lee howard stevens and and you know and the kind of sounds and things that, that he would they would do on on marimba or i can remember uh uh years ago actually i was teaching at the university at the time went to a clinic by evelyn glennie and just just blown away by you know what she could accomplish in terms of all the tonal resources of different percussion instruments, let alone the marimba or the vibes or other 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 kinds of of uh, instruments. And uh, so, you know, and and the story of of getting into jazz, I think, is also is a very familiar one. It seems like you know, there's. Uh, something that unfortunately seems to have gone the way of the dodo bird is the very thing that you're describing is a record store with a knowledgeable uh, person that could say, oh, well, if you'd like this, you'll like this, you'll like this. I mean, we kind of get that now. It's like when you go shopping on Amazon or you log on to somebody on iTunes and it leads you here and there and everywhere, you know, but, but uh we've really lost something with that uh, mono on mono kind of contact uh, mentorship almost uh, with the record store where there was a knowledgeable owner or employee or specialist in that area that could really direct us in our listening. So your experiences resonate a lot with me personally and what I've uh, observed in others. It's kind yeah. of, yeah, you know. it's funny even thinking back to that because at the time I didn't know who Bobby Hutcherson was, you know. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, you know, when I think about <laughs> the vibraphone, for me, it's uh, you know, there's so many. I mean, I've taken something away from from everyone, um, but you know, Gary Burton, Bobby Hutcherson, Milt Jackson, like my 
three favorites. And um, <laughs> I just think about, you know, it was this gentleman that just made that comment. You should listen to Bobby Hutcherson. I never yeah. realized how much that would become, you know, something that I was really going to follow someday and really take to heart. So it is kind of well, I, I you know, in hindsight. I don't recall hearing a Bobby Hutcherson until I saw the movie Round Midnight. Yeah. And he was in that. And, uh, and uh, you know, of course, a lot of other really great players too. But, but uh, you know, discovering those things. Or I remember uh, hearing Roy Ayers. Uh, oh, it was my gosh. It was, he was opening for uh, Chick Corea and Return to Forever by 1974. And uh, it was amazing how he had uh, his vibes set up and all uh heavy duty electronics of course that's what was going on with the whole fusion thing in the mid 70s but uh yeah what a great uh, instrument or the other other reflection i always have is that scene in the uh the movie the benny goodman story where the where the benny goodman and some of the other members of the band are in the cafe and lionel hampton happens to be working there as the waiter <laughs> And he says, and now for the entertainment portion, and he goes over and he plays the vibes, you know, <laughs> and I think that's, that's, was kind of, you know, entertaining as well. So, well, one of the things, uh, you know, uh, I guess, you know, how we get turned on to jazz is that uh, lots of, lots of different ways. And your story is certainly uh, unique, yet similar in, in that of, of others, you know. Uh, somebody saying, man, you should listen to this or listen to that. And then you're right. It just snowballs. Yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, so the, I have a question for you in that, you know, you know, jazz comes in a lot of different flavors. And, uh, and, and so my question is, you know, what is jazz? And you cannot escape by giving me Louis Armstrong's answer to that question. <laughs> but better yet, what is the essence of jazz across all of its various flavors and how is jazz different from other styles of music well i mean i think um i guess in the past 60 or 70 years there's a lot of genres that are similar to jazz in the way that i'm about to describe but i think one of the things that really originally set jazz apart from other styles that were going on if you look historically i think you know if you if you look at jazz against classical music let's say you know if you go back to the early uh, early 20th century i think one of the appealing things about jazz for a lot of people would be the fact that you can play it with anyone that knows the music right so it's not something that you really have to rehearse a ton of times, you know, like it's, it's people just know the songs and they're able to get together and play on the songs. And as long as they both agree on the chord changes for the most part. But I think that's changing um, in a lot of ways now because you have more genres that um, I think are, are similar and so there's kind of this, this uh, evolution in that way. I don't know if I would call everything jazz, but I think jazz has kind of paved a, a path for that. 
you know, like this, um, I don't know what you want to call, call it, but it's, it's made it like accessible, more accessible to musicians, you know, like musicians can just get together and, you know, you can just get together with one other person or two or three, you know, you could be different sized groups, you can have a big band, you can have, so I think that's a big difference. I think there's just a lot of flexibility with it um, that might set it apart from classical music, you know, and, and I think it's got the nature of it. It's, you know, it's not necessary. I want to say, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but it does seem like there's a little bit more of a casual nature to it, right? So you can have it in a club, you know, it doesn't necessarily belong to a concert hall, although it could now. Um, but I don't think that was the original intent with the music, you know, it was originally more for entertainment and dancing and things like that. And then I think eventually that kind of shifted into this more, more of this listening music, but, you know, even as a listening music, you know, you could put it in a club with people talking and, you know, having a drink and it's not, you know, a stuffy concert hall setting or something. So I think that's another thing that, that sets it apart. So, I mean, right there, I think that's all the, the non-musical specific reasons that kind of set it apart from other genres. Mm -hmm. um, then of course you can get into the music itself and start going down that rabbit hole <laughs> with the characteristics. Um, but yeah, I, um, I don't know. I, I think that's probably, for me, that's, that is the appealing aspect of playing it, you know, because as somebody that, that has studied uh, classical music and given concerts in, in that in, in different contemporary music ensembles and um, it's just something that needs a lot more time and effort amongst you and the other musicians you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like to be able to just throw my instrument in a car and go play with people I never even met before there's something Mm -hmm. kind of exciting about that because you get something different every time you know yeah it's it's a complete and different mix of, of personalities there's a couple of things I, I i want to go off script just a little bit but you stimulated my thinking uh you know you mentioned about how you know that uh, uh more insouciant nature of jazz and that we it could be played in clubs i don't know how it is where you are but i know i've been reading a lot and uh of classical musicians trying to uh, uh, get themselves into non-concert hall settings to play, like clubs. Uh, in other words, the idea of instead of expecting people to come to the concert hall, let's take the, the concert music to the people in a club, in a restaurant, in a coffee house. I have a... Uh, uh, a friend of mine here in the Milwaukee area uh, who actually has a production company called Mu uh, Milwaukee Music, or excuse me, Wisconsin Music Ventures. And her sole purpose is to produce concerts in venues where you wouldn't typically expect to go listen to music as a way to, uh, you know, draw uh, uh, 
you know, a broader audience or a different audience than what typically would go to Symphony Hall to listen to, you know, the symphony orchestra, uh, you know, and I, I have to imagine that's got to be going on where you are. I mean, my goodness, you know, much, much larger metro area and, uh, and much richer in many ways artistically. But, you know, we've got that going here. Yeah. I mean, I do know that uh, um, at Mesro in New York, I know they have uh, these different classical concerts on weekends many times. Um, so I've seen that, and um, I, I always thought that <laughs> that's the way to go, you know, mm -hmm. just to have a string quartet or, or, you know, different small ensembles like that play in clubs. I think it's, I mean, it's definitely, you do need a certain level of <laughs> audience participation with like you know like behavior you know good behavior for the audience you know yeah it's not really appropriate for you know maybe one in the morning late set classical you know that's not really going to work um mm -hmm. you know because it's not the kind of music that lends itself to that but i think some of the programming that i've seen um, is often early in the day, you know, maybe late afternoon, three, four o'clock, something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, people can still go to a club and have a drink and, yeah. you know, there could be a little bit of sound in the room, no problem. Um, but yeah, you know, I think I'd much rather, I'd much prefer that to going to a concert hall and then, you know, worrying to like make sure I turn my cell phone on vibrate <laughs> like you get worried yeah. about a pin drop sound that I can accomplish. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, a different kind of experience. Yeah. Well I think I think you know it's it's wonderful creative thinking can uh, kind of lead us to put things in different places. The the other question con uh, concomitant to to this one uh, is is your opinion. Do you think that today's musician, and I'm talking about in general, because you interact with a lot more musicians than I do, although I interact with quite a few, but you're, you're probably much more so, is in a sense hipper than, say, musicians were 50, 60 years ago, because we are approaching music more from a standpoint of, well, I don't just play jazz, or I don't just play, or I only, excuse me, I only play jazz, or I only play classical, or I only play this style or that style, that musicians today are a little more pluralistic in terms of their preparation and their, their influences and what they can and what they, what they choose to do musically. Um, well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I guess the simple answer to that is I think, yeah, well, in, in today's world, as opposed to going back 50, 60 years, I definitely think um, there's a different set of requirements, I should say, for lack of a better term. Um, I think there's this expectation that a musician needs to be well-versed in different styles of mm -hmm. musician needs to be able to read and, and, you know, do certain things 
uh, on their instrument that say might not have been the expectation going back uh, decades. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of the reason for that is just, it's kind of um, like a sign of the world that we live in, I think now, right? Because I think it, and I'm not saying this is necessarily uh, better or worse, uh, because I think that either scenario, you know, like when you, when you kind of, when things evolve, sometimes you get good and bad out of that, right? So I think the good now is that, you know, there's so much information out there that a musician is very well informed and can go to school and can get all this and, and, and kind of know what to do and, and know what they need to do to be able to play this type of gig or that type of gig. And, you know, you get a crash course in, in theory and, you know, your mm -hmm. sight reading on your instrument. And so maybe a musician coming up somewhere else years ago before there was widespread jazz programs didn't have access to that mm -hmm. information. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's mm -hmm. a disadvantage there for uh, going back some decades. However, uh, I'll say that the advantage was that I think the world didn't move, you know, at the same pace going back years ago. Mm -hmm. So there was more of a concentration in certain, like if somebody really dedicated themselves to playing jazz, uh, you know, they were probably spending more time at clubs and later hours at those jam sessions and, you know, getting a different type of education that we're not accustomed to, <laughs> <laughs> you know, probably yeah. in good and bad ways, but I think there's a serious advantage to that. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's mm -hmm. hard to say, I think, you know, you kind of, you know, as things progress, you, you do get, you gain some things, you lose some things, but that's, that's kind of one of the things I, I do, uh, see happening now. Like I do, I do think it's, um, it's great to have the access to everything we have and, and, and have the uh, capacity to do our own concerts the way we've been doing in, during the pandemic and mm -hmm. being able to record ourselves from home. I mean, all these things are great, but then, you know, it kind of does take away from the, the social fabric of it all a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the trade-off i think <laughs> yeah yeah well i think uh i think you make some really great points about 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 music and and our preparation today i mean i i when i taught jazz history i i used to tell my students that when miles davis first went to new york he was he he matriculated at juilliard but he really got his education on 52nd street yeah you know and so things things a lot different uh um well, and speaking of the history of jazz, you know, music that has been labeled jazz has been around for well over a century now. And throughout its history, jazz has had its ups and downs and rumors of its death have been greatly exaggerated. Now, it's probably true to say that jazz is not central to American popular music, but it still exists and it's still lives. Why and how has jazz sustained itself 
over the past century? And what is the major challenge of being a jazz artist in the 21st century? Um, well, I'll work backwards on that question. I think if you start from the end, what's the major challenge for jazz musicians? I mean, it's just always going to be financial for most people, I, I would say. Um, but I think that can be said about uh, the arts in general for centuries. <laughs> you know, if you, if you look back at like, you know, just just all music it's always and and not just and not just music but in any art form um you know because it's not you know medical science or something you know that people consider life and death it's essential it's you know i don't want to say it's not an essential thing but you know i think most people think that uh you know your health and, and heating your home and and clean water comes first, which is which is true, of course, right? And then there's the arts. And you know, that's always been the challenge of it. It's just because you know, people it just seems like always have a hard time justifying the financial part of it because it's something that, you know, takes money. Like when somebody wants to uh hire musicians you know the musicians need to be compensated and you know it's it's just always at the forefront of everything mm -hmm. um, so that's always the 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 greatest challenge i think um and has always been um but how has i guess going backwards now uh how jazz has sustained itself over the past century um I mean, I think part of that is probably what I was saying about the other question, how it kind of branched off of like the way it kind of separated itself from classical music where you could play in smaller groups and be able to play it with different musicians without even knowing who people are. I think that's part of it. You know, it's just very um, easy to pick up with other people as long as everybody knows the tunes and the harmony and all that. And I think the reason why it continues to re remain popular is because we still play the repertoire of the music going back a hundred years, but there mm -hmm. seems to be every 10 years or so a couple new add-ons. You know, sometimes it takes time, but it seems like there's always a couple new songs that somebody started to play at some jam session and then they find their way into the standard repertoire. So it's not just mm -hmm. playing songs that go back a hundred years. Um, the list is kind of growing as we go along. And um, so I think when you combine all those things, it makes it, and, and of course, you know, that's just being able to play common songs with people is one thing, uh, but not everybody out there is playing tunes, right? A lot of people are composing their own music. Um, I compose my own music. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'm either doing that or, and sometimes I go to a gig and I'm just playing tunes with other people. And so, you know, you kind of just prepare yourself for either one of those scenarios. But I think you know, to have that kind of flexibility does enable a music to survive 
mm-hmm. uh, because there's so much you can do with it, you know? Yeah. No, I agree. Well, and then there is that social construct that musically lay people, I don't think fully understand or appreciate. And that is the hang Mm -hmm. because musicians will go out and support other musicians. You know, I don't know how many, you know, I I suppose other professions are are similar uh, in terms of the internal support. uh, But it sure seems to me like musicians uh well part of that is our work is our play and our play is our work you know so like for example you know somebody might come down to a club where you're you're playing right and during the break you know one of the things you're gonna add hey did you bring your axe with you you want to sit in you know that kind of kind of spontaneous sort of uh social engagement I'm not sure exists in other kinds of art forms, nor in other kinds of professions. And I think that's something that also that, that, uh, you know, like <laughs> I know, for example, I'll go play in a big band for two, three hours on a weeknight and not make a dime, but, you know, maybe get to, you know, hang with some other musicians, you know, during the breaks and stuff. And that's fine. That's, that's cool. You know, that's, uh, that's, kind of that social construct that uh, uh, is important, I think, in our world, uh, musical world, and, uh, and, and one that kind of helps sustain things, because that's where we, we socialize, we share information. Um, I, <laughs> I have uh, the dean of the campus where I teach is a folklorist. And I was talking to him one time about music jokes, you know, like, you know, you know, the typical music joke, what do you, what do you call a drummer without a girlfriend, you know, homeless, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, you know, that joke and, and, the, and the zillion of other ones that are out there like that, you know, um, and he's, he said, well, how are those jokes typically transmitted? He says, you didn't read it in a book, did you? I said, no, no. I said, I usually got it because I was hanging with other musicians and people would share, you know, jokes. He says, well, he said, what you're really creating is this body of folklore. And I think we do the same thing like it when we're hanging and we tell those stories about, yeah, I remember the one time when I heard so-and-so play. Or did you ever see Miles? Or did you ever, you know, hear this and so and so forth? And that social construct that is a certain fabric that's there within our society of of musicians that extends wherever there are musicians is uh, is also something that I think is kind of what has continued to breathe life into our art, at least to keep it uh, uh, alive, you know, so... uh, but I, uh, you know, I digress. I brought that up because I was interviewing uh, uh, another trumpet player last week, uh, uh, Farnell uh, Newton. You may know Farnell. Yeah. Uh, and he brought that up about the importance of that social interaction and, 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 uh, and with other musicians. And, and the, because, well, it's just how we work in any profession is referrals. You, you mentioned briefly about composing. Ben, tell us about your creative process. What inspires you when you write? Um, well, if I, had to, if I had to answer that 
very honestly, which I will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, honestly, I think deadlines these days, you know, because when I do these recording projects, when I know they're going to happen, it, it helps me when, uh, you know, somebody's telling me, okay, you're going to do this recording in the summer. So be ready for that with some original material. Um, if I don't have that, then I'm just doing it at a very, very, very slow pace. Um, you know, I know that some people have these, you know, there's like a lot of expressions out there. Like some people say, we should always try to compose a little every day or, you know, so-and-so composes a song every day. And it's, um, it sounds nice in theory, like, you know, like, like, you know, I've tried to do that before and I feel like I could if I had to, um, I mean, I have, but like, I'm just, I've become so picky now at this point about everything I write that I just kind of wait for something. Like I said, you know, when I know I have to record, I feel like the pressure kind of helps me at this point. But I mean, it hasn't always been that way. I don't think I've felt that way over my entire recording career or anything like that. Um, you know, because at first I really wanted to to have some tunes together but I think that becomes the challenge once you really start writing you start learning from your writing you just become pickier and pickier and I think if you're not becoming pickier then I mean I don't know I don't know if that's you know it's sometimes it's good just to write write music that sounds good for the sake of writing good music but for me it's more you know what can I find that I haven't found yet you know mm -hmm. if i mm -hmm. can't find that then i'm then i i'm content to uh just play things that i've already done you know mm -hmm. like i've if i've written the certain certain types of tunes i like to uh, a lot of a lot of the stuff i've been doing now is re-recording things that i haven't played in five to ten years because i feel like my approach changes every couple of years mm -hmm. um, i also think part of being a jazz musician is that you pretty much are a composer anyway when you solo and when you improvise and when you learn something new about harmony it is kind of rewriting your own compositions as you go along mm -hmm. um but with that said um you know the writing that i do like uh as i mentioned before it's mostly when i work with a deadline that's usually helpful to me and let, let's say when i have that deadline a lot of times um you know, I'll just have, uh, like, just sometimes it just starts out as, a lot of times it'll start out as an accident. I'll just be sitting at the piano, um, which is where I prefer to do my composition. Uh, occasionally, um, maybe I'll do something on the vibraphone and think of something. But nine times out of 10, I would say it's sitting at the piano, maybe playing a tune, maybe doing something by mistake and thinking, actually, that sounded pretty cool. And then I mess around with that and, oh, this could be something. And maybe I sketch it out, eight mm -hmm. measures and keep track of it or make a little recording, something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, occasionally, sometimes it's, you know, just playing and the whole tune just kind of leaks out. It's like, oh, this could be really cool, you know? So mm -hmm. um, there's there's all different kind of ways it happens for me. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know if there's any one 
um, method I have, but uh, I would say that's kind of where it starts. Like, like I said, you know, I need a little pressure to feel like I, I have to do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sure, I understand. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, uh, I can't remember. Uh, oh, yeah, it was Igor Stravinsky who once said, it's not that I love uh, music as much as I love the craft of composition. Mm. And that when you, when given a commission, he would be very specific about how long do you want it? How many measures, what type, you know, because you cannot go to a composer of any kind of, just write me a piece of music, will you? You know, well, because the the options are endless, and 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 you could do you could just drown in ideas without ever getting anything done. You know. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's and it's not the easiest. You know, I wish I had a more um, exciting answer. For, you know, like, like, but it's it's when I when I think about these things because because there was definitely a point where I like where I felt differently about composition but the the but the more I like when, well actually going back to when I first started comp see com composition's another thing that I stumbled into on accident um I never wrote anything before it's just when I was in school I had to take a composition sure so there's the pressure and the deadline right right, right. I have to write yep. a new song every week and so I remember the first song I wrote um you know, I was like, oh, this is gonna, this is gonna suck. This is, uh, this is no good. And, you know, I bring it into the class and I was like, wow, that actually sounded pretty good. And mm -hmm. so then the next week I wrote something else. Like, oh, that sounded pretty good too. I thought that wasn't going to be anything. But, and that's what kind of hit me about it. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, if you, if you spend some time to think about who you're presenting this music to people, other people make it sound good if you if you do if you just think about it the right way that was very mm -hmm. revealing to me in the beginning so i kind of got you know into that feeling of it right you know mm -hmm. where it was like and so that's what started to happen when i started to do more gigs and recording sessions where people were interested in original music it was almost like a puzzle in a way it was like okay what can i do to make this band sound you know a certain way or or this specific project for this you know when i do this recording how can it and and that's always been very rewarding but i i think the doing composition in itself is kind of like it's just like running or something you know it's not you know i don't go for runs and think i love what i'm doing right now right and right i can't wait till this is over uh <laughs> because you feel great when you're done like and that's mm -hmm. how i feel about composition like when i get through it and then i hear what people bring to it that's for me that's really the reward in it you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so that's what i really enjoy about it and i just like i said i always need the kick start to do it a little bit but i think that's kind of the motivation behind it and the, the more the more i do it the more i also realize you know jazz composition is is a much different thing because you're really um the material that you bring into a rehearsal you have to be very mindful of the people that you're playing with because they're going to bring certain things to it and 
you want to bring the right stuff to those people. You know, I know that's the old Duke Ellington, you know, like they always say he wrote for the people in his band and, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's, to, to me, that's like a, a just a prerequisite of, of being a composer. You know, you have to have that kind of sensibility, like you have sure. to be able to write for the people you're playing with and know their strengths and what they're going to, and let them bring their strengths to it. You know, try not to be too controlling of everything. Mm. I think those are all important things to have as a composer too. Yeah. Well, you're going to get a, an extra bonus in your Christmas club account because your comments just led beautifully into my next question. <laughs> <laughs> when I, uh, when I used to teach jazz history and appreciation at the university of Wisconsin and Waukesha, I would teach Duke Ellington. You mentioned Duke Ellington with a reminder to my students that Ellington studied to be a painter. Uh, before he dove seriously into music, and that, in my humble opinion, Ellington painted on a canvas of silence with colors of sound, because he did, was for his time, very innovative in combinations of instruments, and you're right, he wrote for specific people on his band, he knew their capabilities, their sound, uh, and specifically everything, you know, about them. And that's, that's why I, I think it can be said that another band can play an Ellington chart, but it won't sound the same as when Ellington played it just simply because of those peculiar, peculiarities of what he was, was looking for. Yeah. But what I would like you to talk about and your various approaches to the elements of music as a jazz artist, what, what uh, steps do you take to create different colors and forms of musical expression with your instrument and the other instruments that you are engaging in your in your music? Uh, well, you know, I, I feel uh, pretty lucky in a way to be able to to be a, you know a part of a lot of different recording projects because it just gives me an it just gives me a different perspective, I think, as opposed to, you know, if I was doing, um, you know, because we all have this capacity to record, you know, we can play from our house and record. And, but I think that when I do these different recording, like positive recording projects that I do, um, there's just something about those situations that you know, going through the whole thing is 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 quite different than just analyzing some home recordings. I think because you know you're putting a product out there, and you're also um, you're looking at how that does out there, right? You know, who listens to it? What songs are? Uh, people checking out. I think all those things uh, kind of influence, you know, what you try to go for in the next project. So for me, the way that I'm writing on a lot of this material um, goes from project to project. I just try to take certain things that I hear, like, and a lot of times it's, it's not my, necessarily my own projects. It's also other people that I record with. 
um, you know, I find myself writing things and I'm like, this kind of sounds like, uh, I know I just did Navin with Boris Kozlov. So now a lot of these things I compose, I listen to them and I, and I know they sound like something that Boris wrote, you know, it just kind of like leaks in there, you know? Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so there's, there's that to add to it as well. You know, when you let, when you write something, you let other players contribute their, what, what they do when you're not like, in other words, um, that's what I was saying earlier. I try not to get too heavily over, like overly compositional. I try to let the players do their mm -hmm. thing on tunes. Mm -hmm. And then I do this, do the same thing when I play their compositions. I try to learn certain things and, and how they write. And I take all these things and I just try to piece together ultimately what I think works the best mm -hmm. from project to project. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. It's hard for me to get an exact, give an exact answer to that question. Um, but that's more or less, you know, it, it's yeah. I, I think that's kind of how I would, uh, you know, instrumentation. I don't necessarily have anything in mind before recording sessions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, sometimes it might be a suggestion from. Uh, the producer um so but usually i do know that in advance so then if i do know what the instrumentation is going to be then i'll look to other projects where i might have had that instrumentation or i might look to things i've done that didn't have that instrumentation but i thought maybe this would sound nice with that instrumentation mm -hmm. um, but i guess the simple answer to to that question would be just trying to learn from one project to the next, you know, sure. sometimes just very small things, you know, it might be something that the drummer plays. Oh, I like that groove. I mm -hmm. don't really remember doing that groove on any other compositions. I was kind of thinking of this other composition and that's, that would be a nice groove for this one or, you know, or this mm -hmm. would be a nice baseline for another composition. You know, so a lot of times those things can be a springboard for new things. You know, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I just maybe give you some feedback of interpreting what I think I hear you say. I, it sounds to me like that our musical personality, and when I say musical personality, I'm thinking of what comes out of our instrument or what we put in and, and eventually comes out of the instrument can be, in fact, is shaped by the other musicians that were around much in the same way that our regular personality is sometimes shaped by the particular group that we might be in, in terms of how the manner we might speak, the style in which we might speak you know um uh you know a casual versus a formal setting things like that or being around people that you know very well versus people you're not as familiar with all those kinds of things might impact or influence how you function mm -hmm. I, I that's kind of what i'm picking up from what you're saying and i and i and i would you know uh, uh 
suggest that that's you know what I experience uh, in my my music making you know from one group to another that I work with and that is a, a slightly different sort of musical personality if you will depending on who I'm around and everyone makes little bits of contributions here and there that that uh, change and you know one of the things that I think sometimes musically lay people also have a difficult time wrapping their head around is that uh, as jazz musicians, we strive not to play it the exact same way twice, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is, a, is difficult because it's like, well, what if I don't like it the way you did it that way? And so, well, I said, well, that's, you know, that's fine. I said, but you have to know to expect that it's, Jazz is not just a performing art, it's a performance art. The, the art is being created as it happens, right. and uh, which, is, which is also kind of a unique thing. Uh, when you get ideas, do you keep like a sketchbook of heads or vamps or, or other ideas that you might draw upon later? Like if you hear that particular groove that a drummer plays and you, you know, do you find yourself that you keep uh, either a physical sketchbook or a voice memo uh, recording or something of th collections of things to draw upon? Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, yeah, I basically have, you know, a small book I keep at the piano and mm -hmm. I have one of the vibes too. And, um, you know, it's just a bunch of scribble at this point, mm -hmm. <laughs> but sure. it helps me. I mean, it just helps me to, re to remember certain things. Sure, sure. Um, you know, and I'll use voice memos sometimes. Um, so yeah, I just, I do a, co a combination of both those things. Um, I'm not really a paper and pencil kind of composer because why do that when you have uh, yeah. Sibelius and Finale and, you know, sure. like I, but yeah, no, I, I wait till the whole composition's done and, you know, I'll record it, obviously, so I don't forget it. Um, and, then, uh, and then once it's done, once I'm done tweaking it, then usually I'll put it to Sibelius so that I have a nice, clean copy of it. But I would say at this point, I probably have more compositions in a sketchbook than are actually printed out on, because you know? not all of them make it. You know, there's a whole, oh, yeah. because that, that's what I was saying earlier about being picky. Um, you know, at this point, I would say 90% of things don't make it. So, <laughs> sure. I don't, yeah. you know, <laughs> if I needed them to, I, I would. Um, yeah. But that's just how it always is. Uh, and, um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of times I'll write something that's perfectly usable, but I only save room for what I want, you know, for what I consider the best at this, sure. you know, at this point. Um, I guess if I was needed to just write a bunch of music for something different, then maybe it would be uh, a different story. Like if I had to write, you know, an hour worth of music for mm -hmm. a film or something, then I'd probably <laughs> change my attitude a little there bit, you, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Well, I want to shift gears just a bit. Uh, like, uh, you know, you, I'm also an educator, and you're an educator. What do you tell your students who are aspiring toward a career in music? Um, 
Yeah, so, well, basically, um, the, the teaching that I do, um, I have, like, a pretty wide variety of uh, what uh, students are going into. I teach theory, and I do have some private students in a jazz ensemble that I teach. And um, so in my, my theory students, um, a lot of them are education majors. And uh, I, I think, you know, there's, uh, I would say 90 some percent of the time they're looking for some kind of career in a public school. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I just, I tried to, to convey to those students um, you know, the importance of being able to, you know, they all hate theory, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so, so you try to try to point out things that, uh, are, are very useful, um, you know, cause, uh, they, you know, they wonder why, why do I need to be able to sight sing in C clef when I don't even play the, mm -hmm. viola? well, you know, because, you know, if you have a job in a school and you're teaching orchestra and you want to know what you're looking at. That's know, right. You got to know what that viola so that's, player is playing. That's pretty much my, <laughs> what I try to impart to, to those students. You know, the ones that are going to be educators, I always try to tell them, just you don't know what you're going to do. You don't mm -hmm. know. So, so you have to be open to all of you have to really, you know, be ready for any of it because, you know, you don't know what your first job offer could be. So don't think you're not going to do something just because it's not on your instrument. And don't think that you're not going to end up performing music just because you're an education major. You're going to be playing with your students. Probably you might have to become their piano accompanist. <laughs> even though you might not play mm -hmm. piano, better start learning. That's um, right. There's <laughs> so a reason we require you to take two years of functional piano. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's what I do uh, with, with, with those students. And then, you know, I have some students that, you know, the performance students, there's kind of different levels there. There's some students um, that, you know, they really want to go all the way, like, you know, they put in everything, and um, you know, I'm very honest with those students. I always tell them, look, you know, it's, it's obviously music's a difficult um, career, and, you know, but just be open to, to doing many different things, and, you know, there's a lot of opportunities out there now, you know, like to, to be able to uh, make a living as a musician. You know, like it's, uh, it's, it's always been a challenge, but I think with the way things are, I mean, a lot of my students end up uh, doing well for themselves, teaching lessons and things like that, creative, being creative on social media, um, you know, and then there's other students, I don't, you know, necessarily think that they're aspiring towards the highest artistic level of music making. But um, I always try to, you know, just look at every student and think, well, you know, what would be appropriate for them? And, you know, could they be on a wedding and, you know, even if it's just reading 
lead sheets, you know, mm -hmm. not necessarily like, you know, being able to memorize 2000 songs or something, but, mm -hmm. you know, like, could this student really just, you know, be able to play some, some gigs, you know, doing, you know, just reading out of a real book or, you know, mm -hmm. just reading mm -hmm. lead sheets, you know, so I would say, yeah, uh, that's that's pretty much how I do it. I always just try to look at it on an individual basis and just try mm -hmm. to find what's there with everyone and and be realistic and honest with with, mm -hmm. with all my students. Yeah, yeah, I I I I, I think that sounds uh, very similar to the kinds of things that I've done because uh, you know I. Uh, <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you one example I had of a, a student I had many years ago who came to my office and for advising. And uh, so I said to him, I says, well, so what is it that you uh, you want to do with a music degree? And he said, I want to be a blues guitarist. And I, I thought, OK, all right. You know, I don't give him the the kind of the downside i said all right so here's what you're probably going to need to do uh you know waukesha wisconsin is not the center of the blues they said but we're only 90 miles away from chicago where you probably will find a lot of experiences and so forth well anyway long story short this guy eventually did uh uh, he finished with us, got his theory and his oral skills, got his act all together, transferred to Columbia College in Chicago. I, I happened to have a relative that lived nearby there. He went to school there, but he got, you know, going to jam sessions and hooking up with people. And, um, and before COVID, he was doing 250 plus dates a year with a uh, 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 an act out of Chicago called Biscuit Miller in the mix. Well, anyway, so Alex kind of found his, his dream and he was able to, to make it and, and do it. Uh, but, you know, you, 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 I'll also tell you the story of one time a student came in to see me and uh, I said, yeah, I want to major in music. And I said, really, what's your instrument? And, and they told me and I says, well, uh, uh, did you do band, orchestra, choir when you're high school? I said, no, I didn't do any of that. I says, oh, well, have you, how long have you been studying your instrument? And they said, well, since January. And this was, you know, <laughs> May before the, and, and I said, well, really? And I, and I said, so do you, how well prepared do you feel? How well prepared do you feel to, 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 to uh, go into the music major? And he says, he said, I know all three chords. <laughs> and so you know you kind of have to wake people up to, to the the realities of what music is as an academic field of study as well as you know the potential you know career uh kinds of uh uh you know aspects of it but uh i you know you're absolutely right i i did a series of interviews where i focused specifically on people I know here in the Milwaukee area that are making a living with music. And every single one of them, it's, you, you know, their, their key element is you have to develop several um, streams, financial streams. You can't just focus on being a player or you can't just, you know, like a, uh, another former student of mine, he plays, he also 
uh, runs a teaching studio. He does sound and lights. He's, you know, he's, he's got a, a lot of different uh, income streams going on, but he's, you know, making a living in what he wants to do, which is music. And uh, so it's, uh, it's really kind of a, a, a subject that we can address. You know, one of the things that I think is, uh, in this country at least, is that you're either at the top or you're nothing. You know, there's, we don't think about the middle ground. And, uh, <clears throat> but there's a lot of that too. Sounds like you're addressing that in your, what you're doing with your students. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's, that's right. And um, yeah, I, you know, I, I feel like it's interesting. Um, you know, I live, uh, I actually live in South Jersey. And um, so I, I, when I do gigs in New York, I commute, it takes me about an hour and a half. And when I do, I'm pretty close to Philly, actually, it only takes me about 20 minutes to get into town. So I'm around these two great cities with a lot of great musicians. And, uh, but I'm also in South Jersey and there's a lot of great musicians in South Jersey. And, but, you know, it's also like, there's not as many people in South Jersey, like there is in Philadelphia or New York. And so there's a kind of like a lot of these, a lot of musicians that, you know, it's, and, and I don't want to say the wrong thing, you know, but there's New York and Philly where these musicians play at the highest level. And then, uh, you know, there's the different areas like where I live and there's musicians that aren't at that level and not at the same level, but they're at a competent professional and in a lot of ways, a more professional level than a lot of musicians <laughs> that I play with and, you know, sure. and, 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 and you know, it, it's 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 very interesting to to observe that. I've never been, you know, because I know a lot of my colleagues are a little, they get a little, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. You know, they get so picky about who they want to play with. Oh, I don't want to play with this person, or I don't mm -hmm, want to play mm -hmm, with that person. Mm -hmm. And I I've, I've never, you know, the only people I don't want to play with are the people that are just going to act like a jerk on a gig. You know? There you have it. You know, if somebody shows up and, you know, unless they're blatantly doing something wrong, you know, I would never treat anybody with, with any kind of disrespect. Like if I accept the gig and, you know, the musician's not up to the level of the guy I played in Manhattan with the night before, it doesn't really matter to me. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Do the best job I can to make the music right in that situation, support and Mm -hmm. you know have a good time um so that's how i look at and, you know like i said the, the, the teaching that i do i look at the same and and i see a lot of my students they could be they, they could end up being that type of musician you know not somebody that's at the top but somebody that's perfectly competent who has studied their instrument and you know i i think that those players uh you know, we, we, there's always a place for those players as well. I never mm -hmm. like to think it's, you know, oh, it's all or nothing, you know, like sure. you, have to be, you know, and so well, it's actually one of the things that's really bothered me um, about 
playing jazz <laughs> over the years, you know, is that I've always felt like there was this separation in that way, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes not talked about so much mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. because it's not, maybe it's not the most comfortable thing to talk about for people. Yeah. But yeah. I think it's important just to, to play with anybody that's serious and professional and is going to show up with a good attitude. Sure. Well, I think that's, that's the most, I hear that from everybody that I, you know, we'd rather play with someone who's you can get along with and you can work with. And because if you got the most talented person in the world and they're a complete jerk, there's no fun in that. There's no, there's no pleasure in that. And I, I, you know, I love and enjoy where I live. Uh, you know, Milwaukee has a, a very nice music scene. We have a wonderful symphony orchestra. We also have a really nice or symphony in uh, Madison. We have a jazz scene. Uh, it's not New York. It's not Chicago, but there is a jazz scene here. And uh, there's clubs and, and places where the music gets played and gets appreciated. And, uh, uh, and I know and have the pleasure of playing with some people that are there. Like, it's a pleasure to play with them because they're just, they're good people. They're competent on their instrument, but more importantly, they're decent human beings. They put their pants on one leg at a time, just like anybody else, you know, that those kind of folks. Right. And, uh, and occasionally, you know, I play with some guys from Chicago. I, New Year's Eve, I played a gig, a big band gig. And, uh, a couple of the trumpets were, were from, uh, were Chicago guys and, and, uh, uh, you know, still, uh, you know, wonderful opportunity to play, play uh you know on that level and it's uh you know a lot of fun but anyway um we're we're getting kind of close to the end of our time so i i want to slip down i don't want to forget to ask you about your new your album still doing our thing now you released this in 2021 um and so talk a bit just a little bit about the challenges of recording an album during a pandemic Number one, and it, it, I, I have to ask you, is the title of the album a reminder that you're still alive and kicking, even during a time when COVID has shut down so much for musicians? <laughs> well, yeah. That's, okay. That's, that's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that, that, was, that was the yeah, story behind the album, for sure. Well, uh, score one for me. <laughs> Yeah, and um, yeah, it's uh, the challenges. You know, I yeah, I, I've answered this question before in the in the past, and uh, you know, I, I I I don't know, like for me I, like my answer uh, you know i don't think it's changed i don't know if i really had the same you know i know there was uh, uh i think it was downbeat asked art hirahara the piano player on the album because we all uh, art and forrest and i and, and rudy royce and all the musicians on the album we ended up doing our own projects or at least art and boris and i and right around the same time during the pandemic. And I think Art had an answer, you know, just not really playing with people in a while, you know, a kind of, um, 
you know, maybe not having that interaction kind of makes you feel a little rusty, like you have to kind of get back into that. And that's part of the challenge. Um, I just didn't really feel the same. <laughs> it kind of felt good to me. But then again, I think my role in that was a lot different um, because I'm a, you know, I mean, I'm a rhythm section instrument, like a vibraphone could be a comping instrument and can be in the rhythm section. Um, but since I was playing with piano, bass, and drums, I was more like a like a horn in that situation, right? Mm -hmm. I'm kind of sure. like a frontline instrument. So I think the challenge and, and talking about getting into that interactive thing in the groove, you know, I, I would hate to say it like this, but I just think it's the truth. I think there's definitely the challenge there with, for rhythm section instruments, you know, if it... Um, if you're not doing that, like, you know, as much as you were pre-COVID, um, you know, mm -hmm. I think there's definitely something to be said when you're playing with people night after night after night. And so I think there's, you know, kind of a little bit of that, but, you know, to be honest, he may have said that I didn't notice anything, <laughs> you know, like I thought okay. they, they sounded great from the, from the start. But I, I think maybe that's what it is, right? Because even if the problem's not there in reality, there's always the, the mental aspect of that, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I haven't been doing this in a while, so I'm going to be rusty. Because that's what we do as artists, right? You know, we don't practice for a day and then we think we suck all of a sudden. And, and, mm -hmm. and it's just not really the truth. But, but that feeling of that is real at the same mm -hmm. time. You know, so in a sense, I think that's probably the answer to the question is that the challenges are more mental than everything, right? Sure, um, sure. And, and, and in the back of your head, oh, you know, there, this was, we did all this, there wasn't vaccines yet, right? So none of us want to get sick and we're wearing masks and, and then, you know, you're wearing a mask for six to eight hours and, mm -hmm. you know, I was already trying to get the headphone thing out of my face before now I'm adjusting this thing and you know that becomes kind of a nuisance so you know there's kind of all these little things to sure to sure it. but I think that's probably at the end of the day you know there's just like this 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 feeling you know it's more of a mental challenge and everything yeah. you kind of overcome that in a short time anyway. yeah well, well, there's, it seems to be uh, maybe a, uh, I, I know my experience was just getting the chemistry back together, the group chemistry. Yeah. I found that with all my groups, you know, just because for so long, the only thing I played with was a metronome and a tuner, you know, in my practice room. And then to finally get together with other people and play, it was weird. Yeah. It felt great, but it was weird. And yeah, kind of uh, blindsides you for like yeah. a split second. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you just had to kind of get over that. But it sounds like you uh, you uh, seem to uh, skate through that pretty well. Oh yeah, and there was definitely things I did at home in advance. Sure, sure. For it, you know. Um, yeah. I don't need to get into great detail with, but you know, like things that I you know um, I knew were going to be a challenge. And so there was like certain exercises and things that I would do on my instrument beforehand just to make sure, you know, I was on top of everything. So I wasn't wasting a bunch of time. I got you. Yeah. Sure. Do you have any uh, new recording projects planned or in the works? I do. Yeah. I don't have a specific date, but I should be doing uh, 
another album of my own in the summer and um, maybe another um, album with the collective group out to dinner that uh, Positives, uh, Positones put a string of uh, albums out. So uh -huh. uh, that's something that we're kind of talking to, uh, talking about. And um, yeah, so I, I don't know, probably at least two, two recordings at some point in the next six months. And, Oh, well, very good. Well, we'll be, we'll be watching for that. I'm on the Positone mailing list, so I'll be looking for that. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, Ben, is there anything else you'd like to add or tell my audience that I haven't asked you about? Uh, not necessarily, but I guess this is the part where I could do a shameless self-plug for an uh, upcoming performance. Okay, <laughs> sure. But, Go right uh, ahead. Well, uh, I guess January 26, uh, it's a Wednesday night and, um, you know, it's not, um, it, it's actually something that's, it's, let's see, I think it's 7.30 on the 26th, yeah, and it's actually going to be live streamed too, but I'm playing at Mesro with a uh, great guitar player, Bob DeBoe, so it should be okay. a really nice gig, it's a trio I uh, play with him and Steve Lespina, and we'll be doing some of Bob's music, maybe a tune or two of mine, and they're going to stream that. And so that's kind of. Uh, Would we access that through your Facebook page, or is there another another venue through which we could access? Oh yeah, so the website for Mesro uh, directly is uh, has like the the uh, streaming link right on the website. Oh okay, yeah, I'll uh, I'll plug Mesro at the. Uh, the website address into my show notes so you know people can access that yeah and uh, that'll be great so january 26 7 30 uh yeah i think 7 30 7 yeah. 7 30 okay well they can check their local listings on the uh on the website uh also uh just to remind my listeners i've got uh, ben's website his facebook page uh all included in my show notes uh, so you can learn more about uh but Ben and his upcoming recordings, his recordings that he's already done, all of his wonderful music, uh, and encourage you to do so because it's uh, been a pleasure to listen to your music. And now it has been a pleasure to have taken time to speak with you. And uh, Ben, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me today and all the best with what I'm sure will be a continued successful musical future. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me. You bet. My discovery composer of the week is Arthur Oniger, born in Larve in 1892, died in Paris in 1955. A member of Le Six, his serious-minded musical aesthetic was entirely different from that of others in the group. He developed unusual musical and dramatic forms in large-scale works for voices and orchestra, and was one of the 20th century's most dedicated contrapuntalists with a clear indebtedness to Bach. His language is essentially tonal, but characterized by a highly individual use of dissonance. Despite his admiration for Debussy and Ravel, his music is often rugged and uncompromising. The eldest of four children, 
Oniger studied the violin and harmony as a child. He then spent two years at the Zurich Conservatory. His discovery of the music of Wagner, Strauss, and Rieger had a profound effect on his emergent musical language. In 1911, he enrolled at the Paris Conservatoire. When his family returned to Switzerland in 1913, he settled in Montmartre, residing there until his death. His music was first heard publicly in Paris in July of 1916. Although Onager was a member of Le Nouveau Jeunet and subsequently of Le Six, he shared with the other members a stimulating companionship rather than a group aesthetic, the existence which he always denied. While he undoubtedly benefited from the immense publicity accorded to Le Six, his own distinctive musical language attracted widespread acclaim even before his Le Roy David of 1921 catapulted him to international prominence. The series of large-scale dramatic works and major symphonic scores he composed during the following 30 years established him as one of the most significant composers of his generation. Nearly all his music was recorded during his lifetime some under his own direction. He also made pioneering and extensive contributions to the development of music for film, 43 scores, and radio, eight programs. During World War II, Onegger taught at the École Normale de Musique. The 1940s saw an intensification of his ties with Switzerland. He increased his visits to the country and wrote more works for Swiss festivals and performers. After suffering a coronary thrombosis in America in August of 1947, his poor health severely limited his musical activities. His depressed state is clearly reflected in the trenchant tone of his two books and his address, The Musician in Modern Society delivered to the 1952 UNESCO conference. His many honors include election to the Institut de France in 1938, foreign membership in the Académie des Beaux-Arts, the presidency of the Confederation Internationale de SACEM, and an honorary doctorate from the University of Zurich in 1948. For Onager, compositional inspiration was often stimulated by extra musical sources, though his music is left less often programmatic. His student works sometimes display a striking indebtedness to Debussy and Ravel, but he soon found a more individual language. His first successful orchestral work, the symphonic poem, Les Chants de Nigamont of 1917, reveals his natural sense for dramatic music. Also predating Le Roy David is a surprisingly large corpus of chamber music, which includes two violin sonatas, one written in 1918, the other in 1919, a viola sonata and a cello sonata 
both written in 1920. In places, his incidental music for L'Edit des Jours de Mont of 1918 includes complex contrapuntal writing which suggests parallels with Schoenberg's musical language in the works immediately preceding World War I. His two orchestral works, Pastoral de Té of 1920 and Horace's Victory of 1921, are strikingly contrasted. The former is tender, relaxed, and lyrical, while the latter is massive, complex, and powerful. Onegger's output during the 1940s was dominated by four symphonies. Apart from his ballet and incidental scores, from which a number of individual movements and suites were extracted, Onegger's melodies are the most unaccountably neglected genre of his output. The chamber music is also notable, particularly the two string quartets. At Onager's cremation, his achievement was summarized by Jean Cocteau. Arthur, you managed to obtain the respect of a disrespectful era. You linked to the skill of an architect of the Middle Ages, the simplicity of a humble craftsman of cathedrals. The All Music Guide lists four recordings of Onager's ballet scores, one recording of his Prelude, March sur la Bastille for wind band, 32 recordings of his chamber music, nine recordings of choral music, three of his concerti, 16 of his film scores, 20 of works for keyboard, four of his operas, five of his symphonies, 24 recordings of other orchestral works, four recordings of his musicals, and 39 recordings of his works for solo voice with accompaniment. In my show notes is a link to a performance of Onager's Entrada for trumpet and piano, performed by Thomas Hooten, trumpet, and Joanne Pierce Martin piano. That wraps episode 71. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I'll be interviewing jazz trumpet player Russ Johnson. Russ has had an extensive career in New York as a jazz trumpet player, and more recently serves on the faculty of the University of Wisconsin Parkside. Other upcoming interviews include jazz saxophonist Roxy Koss, jazz tenor saxophonist and educator Tom Talich, jazz trumpet player and educator Josh Lawrence, and jazz trumpet player and record executive Alan Blanchard. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at uwm.edu. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and... Carmel the Wonder Dog, signing off from 
The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.